Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Ajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be talking to Professor Brian Cummings about a wonderful book he published with Oxford University Press last year. The book is called Bibliophobia, The End and the Beginning of the Book. Brian Cummings is a professor of English at the University of York. Before arriving at York, he was a fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge, and then professor of English at the University of Sussex. Brian, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you very, very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Brian, can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Tell us a little about yourself, your uh, area of expertise, and more importantly, why you decided to write a book about fear of books, bibliophobia. Yeah. Well, uh, in answer to your first question, I, I am a, a literature professor. I teach I teach English. My main area of um, of of, uh, of expertise, if you like, is is the early modern period between, say, Thomas More through Shakespeare into John Milton. Uh, but I've also, I mean, I suppose as part of uh, of that period of in- interest, uh, I'm a historian of the book. It's the period of the uh, of the development of the printed book in the West. Of course, the printed book has a much older history in the East, but in, in, in the West, it's it's regarded as a very formative moment in cultural history. And I also have a, an interest in the uh, in the history of uh, religious controversy and violence. So um, the, the, the period that I work on is also the period of, of religious reformation and of religious war. And um, I suppose I, I put those three things together. How do how do we? They, they're normally kept in separate places. So how, how do we think about literary interpretation, um, and how do we think about the history of the book, and how do we think about the history of of, of religion and of the, of the sacred, all in the same place? Um, so that that covers sort of my 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 main sort of areas of, uh, of of interest. In terms of how I came to be interested in this topic, it goes back a long way. This book has taken a it's a long book, but it's taken a long time. Uh, to think about um, and to formulate how to conceptualize it, it began in, in in a slightly accidental way with with an exhibition that I saw when I was a graduate student about Martin Luther, and Luther, among the other many famous things he did, uh, burned books in fifteen twenty in public um, in Wittenberg as an act of defiance against the papacy. There are actually arguments about which books he burned, but. You know, he burned them. And in return, uh, the, the, the church also burned Luther's books in very large quantities. And in the exhibition, there was a burned book, a charred object, and it purported to be one of the books that Luther had uh, had burned. And so I went to see the curator and just asked about it. And, uh, and the curator was a bit embarrassed, actually. He said, oh, uh, it's not a Luther book. It's not a 16th century book. It's not a German book. It's just it's just a book that we happen to have in the Cambridge University Library, which they set fire to because it was a spare, because they thought it was somehow, it would be fun. And I, I was struck by two things. One is uh, the powerful investment in the in the book itself as an object, what was it that made it an object of fear that you you might actually want to physically damage? Uh, 
but also what was it about this strange act of faking the act in the in in the library and it's taken me a long time to unravel these ideas and the the other key point is that my interest has coincided with a new digital revolution. At the heart of the question about Luther and the book burnings is printed books. Uh, but in my, my own time, um, it, it turned out that we were living through a new media revolution in the in the form of, 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 of writing and how we receive it. And at the same time, huge kinds of paranoia and fear of the apocalypse seemed to be associated with this digital revolution. So what I wanted to do was not to write a, a history of the book uh, in a long, I mean, although that's involved in what I've done, but I've, I've, I've very deliberately not written a linear book uh, that goes from A to B, but rather a thematic book that tries to understand what is this phenomenon? Why is it that books might be considered to be objects of fear when most of us associate books, I suppose, on the whole, in everyday way, with, with, with pleasure or with freedom or, or, or a number of, of, of you know, more positive characteristics? Yeah. Uh, it, it was a great introduction. And uh, you mentioned a few points that I or did want to bring it up with our audience. One of them is about the length of the book. As you mentioned, it's quite a big book. There are 24 chapters. But it's highly readable, and when, but to be honest, when I first started reading the book, I thought it would be a linear book in terms of like starting yes. from five thousand years ago. But no, it's thematic; it's more thematic. And I do like to mention, yeah, go on, please. There was a very good um, history, well, uh, it's a sort of three volume uh, approach to this by Stephen Robert Fisher, which which does take the linear approach. But the, the problem is that we get to the 18th century with with 20 pages to go. Uh, you know, it's been a fascinating story. Um, but for, for me, um, the last those last 20 pages are absolutely crucial because I am thinking about how we are feeling now, as it were. But at the same time, what we feel now embodies this extremely long history. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and we, we've we've never got rid of the very first things that happen in the history of the book, even now. Mm. Uh, and I think it's a perfect segue to what I wanted to say next was that uh, because there are a lot of chapters in the books, we're mainly going to be focusing on the last two parts of the book, the two sections of yeah. the book. Let's say the yes. body of the uh, book and ghost in the uh, and ghost in the book, which is more about the modern times. But before we start, can you please generally tell us the main premise of the book? What do you mean by Bibliophobia, and also talk a little bit about the structure. You have uh, six sections there, the death of the book, books and violence, sacred text, the cult of the book, the body and the book, and ghosts in the book. Just broadly tell us about the main premise Absolutely. and the structures. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, bibliophobia is, a, is, not, is a grand metaphor, if you like, rather than uh, a condition. And I'm not, I'm not describing a, a clinical condition, uh, um, although fear and, and, and power and, and, and anger and violence are, are, are inherent in what I'm talking about. Um, what my interest has been in is what is it about the, the category, the form, the concept, the experience of the book, uh, which would make it the object of violence uh, and perhaps also at the same time of extreme care and uh, uh, and solicitude we, we we love books we take care of books we cherish them as objects uh, you know you can probably see behind me I've got quite a few of my own books you know that, that they, they they become parts of our lives but at the same time uh, they're associated with very very powerful feelings including very powerful uh, negative feelings so if I if I describe the the overall structure of the book I, I begin with the idea of the death of the book 
um, which is both a very new idea and a very old idea. Um, it's a very current idea at the moment that somehow we might be going through the last stages of the book. So I wanted to investigate that. And that first section deals with futurity, uh, with, with the idea of that, that we're going through a, an absolutely all-changing revolution. Uh, that the, the the very format of of how we we think uh, in in written form uh, is undergoing a profound and perhaps uh, uh, irreversible change in in our lifetimes. And then I go into a kind of deep dive in that first section back into the very early history of of, of the book, um, into Sumeria uh, and uh, the the very earliest forms of of, of written materials. And the the early collection of these materials, but um, to to create a kind of body of knowledge, and I, I suppose what I'm trying to explain there is that this is a very ancient idea. The, the idea of apocalypse as being, in some sense, associated with with the book as an object is actually very very old. So then the second section uh, is uh, which is which is about books and violence, um, looks at very particular historical instances of uh, really important uh, book burnings and, and, and violence towards the book. So the, the first one, the one that is in everybody's minds, uh, usually when they talk about book burning, book violence, it's always the, the story of the Nazi book burnings of 1933. It, it's a subject we actually have to, I think, treat with a lot of care, like we have to do everything to do with uh, with, with, with Nazi history. It's, 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 we, we, we make too easy assumptions about it. Um, but I wanted to deal with that. I wanted to deal with the, uh, with, with, the first book burnings in, in ancient China, uh, and, and with and with more recent cases as well, and with the uh, with the sixteenth century book burnings around Luther. So I, I try to think about what what the violence is and why it might happen. That takes me on to the third section, which, in a way, has it, it, which is uh, a sacred text, which is sort of pivotal in the book. So on on the one hand, I'm dealing with the the relationship between the book and the holy. So. Um, most obviously, the Jewish religion, the Christian religion, and Islam all are centered around a holy book or a holy set of writings. And, and in their different ways, actually, all, and it is different, and it does need to be acknowledged that it's different, Buddhism and Hinduism uh, and Sikhism uh, and Jainism, uh, other religions are also uh, profoundly related to how they deal with, with, with text. So that's that's one concern there. The other concern is with text itself, with script itself. So uh, the, the the Hebrew script, the uh, the Arabic script, and the the Greco-Roman alphabet and uh, Chinese characters and various other kinds of writing system in the East are all again profoundly related to how we think about uh, what writing is. Uh, what it does for us, how we inhabit it, what what our part within writing is. <laughs> Then the uh, the last three the last three sections, which I suppose we're going to, to concentrate on, deal in turn with the book as an object itself, uh, what we how how we think of writing as an object rather than as something um, uh, abstract. Then the body in the book, which is about how we relate to physical writing with our own bodies, or how writing becomes a substitute for us in some ways for ourselves, identities. And then finally, the, the ghost in the book is is about the turn of, turn to modernity within within this. The uh, you know the, the certainly the cliche is the uh, that that we we have a different relationship now, and I think that's because we've begun to think that writing is essentially something which is non physical, uh, and and language as being non physical, 
Um, and in some sense, we're rather disturbed then by moments when we uh, when we realise that it's not actually, because writing is still a physical thing, and our relationship with it is still physical. Um, and so I, I suppose I'm trying to talk there about ways in which we have occluded from ourselves um, the, the embodied relationship with language, and at the same time find ourselves find ourselves still disturbed and perturbed by that relationship. Um, and, and that's changing as we speak. I mean, in some ways, although it's a very long book and I did try very hard, you know, there are ways in which even a year later, a, a book begins to feel as if it can't keep up because the pace of change is, is so extraordinary. Uh, and we don't yet know, actually. We, it's, it's, it's an unknown future what the book might be uh, in uh, in 50 years' time, if, if we're lucky enough to get to, to 50 years' time. We're doing a pretty good job at uh, making sure we uh, we don't have any future at all, never mind the future of the book. Yeah. And uh, let us start with, with this question of the death of the book, which you kind of raised at the beginning. Do you... I used to be a hard believer in that, but now I'm starting to kind of become more uh, uh, suspicious of of the claim that the rise of digital media is actually heralding the death of the book. What do you think about this? Well, I I went through the same process myself, and and I've I've asked myself the same question from both sides uh, many times. But I came to the conclusion that it's a a category confusion that makes us think that something is, is dying and is gone. And it's because in some sense we've made some kind of um, uh, mistake about the relationship between form and content, or or perhaps we've become too engrossed with a particular format. So the thing that is dying is what a, you know, what a historian of of, of books would call the codex. So in other words, uh, uh, an an object in which pages are fastened together or glued together uh, and then, and then uh, bound or, 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 sort of fixed at, at the spine and you can open out two pages at a time and flick them over that's the codex and it could be that that is 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 dying um although interestingly uh although 10 years ago people said that the ebook would have would have taken over by now actually people have returned to the codex but again that's not really the point um the codex is just one object among many uh you know we 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 used tablets and we used scrolls long before we used codices and for that matter it seems to me that profoundly the smartphone is a kind of book um it's other things as well but it is what it is is uh, a a format which has contents and it contains writing in a way which seems to give an idea of very large contents and yet at the same time finite and uh in that sense it does exactly the same job um as 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 a printed book might might seem to i don't i i writing is with us we are uh, a writing species we are a reading species more reading is going on now i think on an everyday basis than at any time previously in human history uh you know i i wake up and i go to sleep and i hate myself for doing it looking at my phone and uh and reading 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 obsessively i mean even though my day job is reading so what surely i should relax by doing some something else and i and i think there's something very interesting about that something very interesting about uh the profundity of the human relationship with with the written word uh, but it goes beyond just writing itself it's about the co- the, the notion of contents uh, and storage, and uh, as being something which is both potentially infinite 
and yet actually is also practically always finite. Uh, I, I hadn't thought about that, but I guess you're quite right that we, we're reading more than we used to in the past because and reading, we have to go beyond the format of the book, as you mentioned, digital media as well. Uh, one thing, again, I found quite fascinating about the book was uh, the section of the book, which is called The Body and the Book. I never thought about book as an embodied object, let's say. And and the idea of a book, as you mentioned again earlier, we all love books. We have a library at home. There isn't this effective relationship. So what do you mean by uh, body and the book? Well, um, I, I suppose we could think about it in two, two different uh, ways which sort of fold in on each other in a way that's that's a leading metaphor for the way I think a lot about a lot of things in, in in the argument of the whole book but on on the one hand uh, a book is is a physical object that we have a physical relationship to uh we hold it in our hands and then we interact with it with our eyes and um it's an interesting thing in terms of, of of size here and formats that if you go back to the the various very earliest cuneiform tablets, they're very similar in size to uh, a tablet now, and there is a very good reason for this, which is is the size of a human hand. It's a portable thing, and its portability is very fundamental. Um, that can then be extended into the the codex form in the sense you have two two pages open. Uh, at one time, it's like having you know both of your hands open uh, uh, in front of you, and you become, as it were, um, related to contents in an interestingly physical way. Um, at the same time, there is a it's it, it's it's not just a simply a, a subject object relationship because there is some kind of triangle going on in terms of uh, of how we uh, how we inhabit a book as we read it how we imagine ourselves um, within the book, how we relate to the book as something different from ourselves, but at the same time, perhaps also strangely similar to ourselves. Um, so that, that's one side of it. The, the other side of it, I suppose, is, is thinking about the book as a kind of body in itself. Um, this is something which clearly uh, comes into play, both with the idea of the sacred book, the holy book as being um as it were ha having some kind of imminence in it of of the divine um but for that matter also um that the book becomes a kind of substitute body um it's it's a different body in front of us um and one way of thinking about that actually is through which is something i'm very interested in is is um script on on the face of something becoming as it were human-like Anthrop some sort of anthropomorphic connection. The most obvious example of it is tattooing, although tattooing is a is a is a much much more, as I've learned by having to try to write about it, a much more complex um, and varied form perhaps than than most of us think when we initially come across it. Um, I was profoundly affected by a series of photographs, that are artworks by Shirin Neshat, um, an Iranian artist um, who emigrated to uh, New York uh, after the Iranian Revolution and produced these images of uh, initially of young women, but uh, increasingly of, of all kinds of different people with script, as it were, seeming written across their faces. And it looked as if it was a kind of tattoo, but it wasn't. It was the, it was actually the, uh, the impression of a, f a photograph of writing onto the photograph of the, of the face. 
Um, and it, it made me think very, very strongly about how it is that we uh, we actually think of written text in some sense as a kind of alternative body. Uh, I'm just thinking that I remember a few months ago, I talked to someone who had written a book about medieval scribes and uh, apparently to them, the idea of writing was more an embodied act. It it yes. took way, way longer for them to write a book, the scribes, and some of them uh, were, because the scribes were kind of uh, unknown people, nobody knew them. And some of them were so yeah. conscious about that they wrote their names on the margins of the book for the posterity to, in some medieval scripts, apparently this exists. <laughs> and I find it quite fascinating. Well, uh, the, the figure of the scribe is incredibly important in uh, in Islam. And, yeah. and uh, calligraphy is, is in mm. some sense perhaps an, a dominant, maybe even the dominant form that lies behind Islamic artistic expression. Uh, and uh, and so that sense of what it is that you are writing on, what you are writing with, so the ink, the brush, the pen, um, for that matter, the, um, I mean, paper may be one thing, but in the medieval times that you're talking about, uh, it probably would have been parchment, and so it's animal skin. And there is a huge amount of, of, of writing by scribes and by people who know books about the fact that you are writing on animal skin. Uh, and of course, that becomes a metaphor for, for human skin very quickly. Although, although some people have uh, used human skin for this purpose, it's it's not the dominant, uh, mm. dominant commodity, of course. Uh, and I think the next question I have is about the idea of fetish, and you talk about it in the book. And a very good example is Shakespeare Folio uh, that you talk about. And then you go on to make this great argument that this book fetishism has been revived again with this idea of commodification and uh, and digitization. Can you walk us through that argument? Yes, I, I, I suppose part, part of what's going on here is is through a very familiar idea of somehow the, the, the transfer of, of religious feelings into uh, in, in, into the modern modern world in one way or another, and uh, the fetish as an idea is, is, I suppose, it is a way of occluding something which is still profoundly there, but we don't actually think about actively, or perhaps we don't want to think about actively. So the the first point with a with, with the Shakespeare folio is that it is um, you know, way more valuable than it has any right to be. You know, folios are quite rare, but they're not, you know, as rare as their value suggests. So there, there is this extraordinary commodity fetish in Marxist terms about um, the, the, the price of a, of a folio. And, and um, you know, one was sold a, a couple of years ago um, for several million Canadian dollars. Uh, and... At the same time, I think it's uh, it, it's something much. It is something other than just com uh, uh, commodity in terms of price. It's commodification altogether. So um, our sense of um, I mean, uh, I suppose my parallel with 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 the Shakespeare folio is was, is the iPhone. I mean, of course, there are many other kinds of phone that one might talk about. An iPhone just happens to be the one that I own, but also the one that became iconically uh, famous through the photograph of of Steve Jobs, um, uh, and, and the, the the sort of genius, which, as with many things in the digital revolution, is nonetheless a genius that wasn't completely understood as it was being made, that this small object was being created, which could contain everything about you, um, and yet you carry about in your in your pocket, um, and we still maintain 
I think, in our everyday lives, some much more simplistic ideas about what language is for and how writing works and how uh, how you know how we use language with each other. And we uh, and actually, sort of tech gurus like um, Mark Zuckerberg are very fond of using these very simplistic um, uh, ca- categories. Communication, for instance. We think of it as being about a form of communication. Well, there's nothing wrong with communication as an idea, but um, a, a smartphone is not a, not just an object of communication. It, it, it is an extraordinary uh, metaphor for our, our, ourselves, which at the same time we just do not understand. So, in that sense, I think fetishization is the is is the best way of trying to conceptualize this. That you, you're aware of a sense of the importance of the thing, but you're not aware. Of, of of how it's structured, uh, or or even what your real relationship is to it. It's a kind of mystery, um, and and that, that that's been a leading idea through the way I thought about this, these kinds of things all the way through, has been that that element of mystery or ambiguity, which is always there in things that we act we we think of as somehow in non mysterious ways as being perhaps just uh, extremely everyday realistic. Uh, relationships. Uh, I remember I watched a documentary many, many years ago about a cell phone that was like, I guess, 15 years ago, which said that now, nowadays, cell, it was about, I guess, the evolution of telephone in general. And then yeah. the person said that now the cell phones have become an extension of the body these days. And uh, when I was reading the book, you have this idea of books, prosthetic relationship with the body, which reminded me of that. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um uh, it, it's also related to, I mean, I, in, in the um, the section um, on the uh, the body in the book, I, I have a, a long chapter about the hand in in the, in the history of the book, which is a very very old um, issue, uh, and there have been profound arguments about even about the physics of how physiology of how we read in relation to the way that the eye movements work, uh, but also the relationship between the the the, the the handheld book and the and the eye the, the so it's a it's a relationship again it's it's a two way thing uh, that's always taking place um, but the prosthetic is a is, is another good metaphor for what we're talking about with because it's a form of substitution and that that is absolutely elemental to language language is a form of substitution substitution making and we we exchange words for things we exchange words for each other. Uh, and then we exchange ourselves with with those words as as we uh, relate to each other. Um, and so, uh, although we were tempted philosophically to think of language in instrumental terms, it's it's just so much more um, convoluted and, and and complex a, a relationship. Uh, can can you talk about the book as a transitional object? That's also an idea that you bring up in the chapter. What do you mean by that? Well, transitional object is a term from psychoanalysis, um, uh, and um, it's also something which can be applied uh, uh, quite well to uh, the use of objects in religion. So an example in in the religious sphere would be uh, you might initially have a sense of holiness, which is associated with uh, the body of uh, the actual physical remains of a, of a saint, say, and you might go to a pilgrimage site based upon the physical remains being there. Um, but uh, in the medieval period, certainly in, in Christian religion, it's very different in Islam and, and uh, in Judaism, but in Christianity, 
um, it became possible to have an image of the saint, which could have the same function as the body, even though it's obviously not the body. So there is a form of transition which, which takes place in which you accept one thing in place of another. In psychoanalysis, this is often associated in childhood with you know, substitutes for the mother, uh, or in some sense for the love of, of the mother. And so the classic cases are, you know, in, uh, no, I shouldn't mention what my first son's uh, transitional object was on, on, on a podcast. That would be embarrassing for him. But uh, uh, a lot of people use a cloth uh, or a, a cuddly toy of some sort or other. They don't use it. I mean, the, the baby chooses it. And the baby has a very intense physical relationship with this object but which is a way of dealing with separation and abandonment from, uh, from primarily from, from the mother, but it might be from the father, it might be from another person and so on, whoever the main carer is, of course. Um, now, the book has, a, has, a, has an interesting relationship to this, that we, we use it as a substitute for something else, which has this kind of exchange value, which we then attach very strong emotions to. Again, perhaps not always being aware of how we do that. I became very conscious of it when my parents died because um, I became very aware of, uh, of loss and of absence. And at the same time, uh, because of the practicalities of, of, of clearing a house um, with the objects that were associated with them uh, and letters that they had written and books that they had owned uh, were the most profound form of that for me. Uh, and in particular, something I had no idea that he was doing, my father had written notes, little handwritten pieces of paper inside books, telling the story of how he had acquired them, how my mother had acquired them, or their relationship within that. There was one particular one, which was my mother's first gift to my father of a, of a book when before they were in a relationship. Um, and I realised at this moment, that, uh, which I think we're all familiar with at some level, um, that we do use books in, in, in that way. We use them as forms of emotional substitution for things that are very central to our lives uh, and which carry very highly charged emotion, but, but which perhaps we don't completely understand at the same time. So we cherish those things, we treasure them, uh, but we, we also, at some level, I suppose, fetishize them. I can immediately think of a few books that I have that kind of a relationship with. Yes. Yes, that's very interesting. Yes, mm, mm. books that we have, have as children and, and that we keep. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I used to read a lot of abridged novels by Jules Verne when I was a kid. That was, of course, in, a, in in Persian, which is my native language. And then I, I guess I was like twenty eight years old when I moved to New Zealand, and then. I was there and Sunday, my sister sent me a picture of those books that there were somewhere in the storage, I guess they found them somewhere. Yes, yes. I, it was just overwhelmed by different feelings that I couldn't even describe. Now I've kept them. I don't have them here. They're back in my home country. But whenever I go back to visit my parents, I go there, bring those books out and I'm, I just keep them. I have, I don't know why it's there. There is, I guess, this idea that you mentioned as well. Yeah. Well, I suppose the first, the first books for me were, uh, with sort of little abridgments of of, uh, of Greek myths, um, mm. the story of Troy and, and the story of, I mean, even more profoundly, actually, the story of Odysseus returning from Troy. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, eventually I found a substitute for that in the Odyssey, which, you know, is, is, is just such a completely mm. wonderful book. Mm. But my first experience of it was in a, ch a children's abridgment, um, and that had, had such a strong place in my memory. Mm. I don't have the physical book, 
I have a substitute for it of a later edition of that book. <laughs> I can't find the original copy, mm. but I know exactly what it smelt like, never mind what it felt like and looked like. Mm. Yeah. And that's okay. I guess that also kind of relates to this idea of book and the body, the sensory, uh, let's say sensory uh, feelings that are triggered by the memory of, of a book. I still remember there was, again, when I was a kid, there was this magazine, which was published for uh, for kids on a weekly basis. And my dad always used to buy that for me. Uh, and I still remember the smell. I don't have any of those. I used to have like 60 or 70. I don't have any of them, but I still remember that. But one thing I specifically remember is the smell of those <laughs> Those yes, magazines. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. At the same time, I think there's something very interesting about this um, that goes beyond that. Um, there, there are ways in which books have been accommodated within what is actually very fashionable at the moment, ob object study, the, theory of, the, the history of material culture, and uh, object theory in relation to that. But actually, the book is, is both a very, very good example of that and something which is a very good counterexample of it. Because what's involved with the book is not just an object. It is, uh, it's an object with contents. Uh, and so the abstract and the non-physical is absolutely important to it, just as much as the, the physical and the embodied. In, and in some ways, what's going on here is actually the transaction between the two rather than objectification itself. Uh, let's talk about writing uh, as a form of body art. So a, a lot of people talk about tattoos and you earlier you mentioned you talked about the Islamic tradition of calligraphy. And I've come to realize that a lot of people who put on tattoos now, they just use Arabic calligraphy as, as a tattoo without even knowing what it means. But it's it's become, becoming often trendy. Making, often making very fundamental mistakes in the transcripts. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, absolutely right. And when I was in New Zealand, I came to know that the Maori body inscription is called Moko, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, and I, I was told very strictly that it is not tattooed. Don't never oh. refer to it as tattoo. It's oh. it's it's completely different. Um, so what is the idea of writing as, as a form of body art? Can you talk about that, please? Sure. Um, well, I, I, yes, I, 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 um, I, I was, um, I suppose, in some sense, moved by many different examples of this from many different places in the world at different times including the Maori example, and including the really interesting thing, um, and it's not something I understand properly or from the inside, and it's something I just have to try to learn about, that this is not the same as tattooing, um, and uh, it, it is figurative in a different way, and it is not about writing as such. Um, but it, uh, I suppose the, the counterexample to it, which is very interesting and very familiar from the ancient world, is about... Um, uh, writing as a, in the Greek term is a form of stigmata. So uh, it, it is something which is, um, I mean, and there's been lots of arguments about what this means, whether it might be a kind of branding, uh, and particularly whether whether slaves were branded um, to show the name of their owner. Um, uh, uh, there's been an alternative theory more recently among class, classical ar uh, archaeologists and epigraphists that um, it's, it's, it's not uh, branding, but it's a form of tattoo. Um, but the interesting thing is uh, the relationship between objectification and subjectification, which goes on within it. That on the one hand, the act of being uh, inscribed on, on the flesh might might initially seem like a form of uh, objectification, and for that matter, of of enslavement and of marking possession. But it's also found, even in very ancient sources, 
that this is reversed to become a mark of pride and of subjectification. This is precisely my mark of who I am. And uh, so this, um, this relationship between taboo and, uh, and in some sense, sacralization, I think is, is found in, in a lot of different places. In some ways, this goes back to a sort of leading, another leading metaphor that I've been sort of thinking about for a long time, which is the, the, the Latin word sacer, which is the origin of the, of the English word sacred, um, which does mean something like what we would mean by sacred, but actually seems means something much more uh, two-faced. So on the one hand, it's something which is treasured, um, but on the other hand, it's something which is forbidden. Uh, so it's, it's a forbidden secret, which is nonetheless, therefore, by that process, also something which is highly prized. And I think there's something going on in that, in the way that we think about tattooing, perhaps more widely. That it's yes, it's used as a form of body, body art to signal difference, but it's it signals difference in a way which also incorporates a sense of its conflictedness with another set of people who might judge it in a different kind of way. So there is a sort of form of defiance, I think, in in body art still, even though most of our models for it are now in terms of self-expression and uh, and so on. And I, th- I think that relationship between freedom and bondage and between objectification and subjectification, again, is something which is probably inherent in writing itself, inherent in that linguistic or, uh, objectification, cre- creating something physical out of out of language. And we have no idea, of course, how old that is, um, because we have no no evidence whatsoever of language before writing. We just assume that there was lots of language before writing, probably rightly, um, but we have no idea because, of course, it does not survive. It, all that survives is writing. Uh, a fascinating chapter in the book is book burial and ritualized disposal of texts. And I come from a Muslim background myself. So when I was a kid, I remember when I were uh, and I wasn't a practicing Muslim anyhow, but it was something cultural, I guess. Whenever you pick up Quran, yes. you have to use both your hands. Yes. Uh, when you pick it up, you got to kiss it. And in, in, in Iran, which is a, uh, a Shia majority country, so they kiss the book and then they you also touch it with your forehead a little bit. So that's a sign yeah. of respect again. Even when you want to put the book down, you got to kiss it three times and put it, put it down. And I never thought about it, but... What if the book gets destroyed? How how how? What happens? I mean, is it going to survive for eternity? Because you even have to clean your hands when you touch the book. Um, so, can you talk about this idea of this sacredness and also this ritualized disposal of texts? Is it only something that is affiliated with religious texts? Um, no, it's come to be transferred, um, and it is also related with lots of different religions. I mean, it, it, it's. Uh, we, we have in our mind probably uh, archetypal stories of this, which might be associated with particular religions. Um, Islam is a very interesting example of it, and early Islam's relationship to the Quran. And um, uh, what you're saying is absolutely true. Uh, uh, the, these uh, the, these elements of purification in relation to touching and handling the book um, go back. Uh, as far as we know, almost as far as we can say anything at all about the Quran. Um, but it, then immediately, actually, a question came into, into place of, well, what happens when a, when a Quran becomes worn out? Because 
books books are material and they they, they do start and especially through use and the quran is you know preeminently a usable book um that they are going to wear out and so uh, a practice came into being that was in a way we didn't know quite how widespread and how profound it was until we became archaeologists in the last you know 150 years and it was found in damascus you know in the in the in the uh, great mosque there and and in other places early copies of the quran were found embedded in the walls so they had been they had been immolated and this was obviously to preserve them um uh, uh, and uh to to maintain that sense of the purity of the text but by accident it also became um that you know the best process we have for text survival in a different sense so some of the oldest and most precious uh texts of the quran survive only because they were buried and there there is something i think very beautiful about that uh historical coincidence which is not a coincidence of course at all because it's a, it, the coincidence is based upon a desire to to for, for it to survive um in in judaism there is the practice of the geniza which is related to this um uh, which was uh an idea that any piece of hebrew text not just obviously originally there was the question of a text that could contain the name of god and and that became itself a kind of shibboleth and so the, the, the name of god is not contained in hebrew anymore it has to be uh transcribed in a way which sort of hides the real name as it were but actually that gets transferred again another kind of transitional object to any writing in hebrew contains the divine in the sense that this is the language in which the divine has been uh transcribed for us and so the geniza was a kind of um just a, a kind of cupboard or dumping place for any text with hebrew on it and uh, in the 19th century, again, an act of archaeology and archaeological reclam- reclamation uh, in Cairo, the great Geniza in Fustat was was found in, in, in uh, and uh, in in the synagogue, and um, and and of course it contained holy texts, but it also contained lots of texts from the period that happened to contain a Hebrew word, maybe just on the back, um, including you know marriage contracts. Uh, or poems, or you know, lists of bread supplies, or whatever it might be. Now these have become treasurable texts because they tell us more about medieval Jewish culture than anything else really that that, that we have. Um, so I, I think this um, uh, we have a sense of the um, the importance of survival in relation to texts. And we can think about that uh, in relation to holy books um, and and ritual purposes. But in some ways, archives altogether are like this. We keep we archive all the time, and we are desperate to archive the past at some level because we know that the past might slip away from us. And we have a whole new version of this now. A really, really interesting example of it is digital storage, which actually turns out to be much more fragile than we thought it was going to be. So in one sense, it looks as if a digital text is forever because it's sort of non, looks as if it's non-physical, but of course it is physical at some level. Um, and keeping it that way is actually very difficult. So we already have examples of, of software, of things written in software that 
that no longer is used. So how do you preserve that in a, in a longer basis? And, you know, wonderfully, the British Library, um, it's uh, not, not the main part of it, but it's sort of subdivision, which is a, a really weird sort of post-apocalyptic bunker in the middle of Yorkshire at a place called Boston Spa, ha- has within it as well a little museum of, uh, of computers, early computers, and a massive um, uh, storage of, of, of files, of different kinds of file that used to, to, to be used within those computers. And they're trying to work out ways of transferring this material from, uh, from old apples or old you know, Amstrads or whatever, so that they could be preserved into, into futurity. But I think what's interesting is not just survivability itself, but our sense of the potential for loss um, and writing contains our own mortality and at the same time contains our fantasy that we we might not be mortal uh, and that we could survive forever. I mean, obviously, literary writing is an example of that. You know, I mean, the, the, the poem in the first folio of Shakespeare, which talks about, you know, the the reason why you have this book is because it maybe it will keep the spirit of a person alive uh, forever. Um, and, and writing does contain at least that possibility. It's a potential rather than actuality. Um, again, it reminds me of that medieval scribe. Uh, one of the things, I came across that in the book, that one of the things he wrote that those who read this, something like this, don't forget me, my name is something don't remember his name, but he wrote his name, just hoping that the future people who read this medieval uh, manuscript would remember him as well. Uh, You also talk about the French Revolution and the impact the French Revolution had on writing and uh, the press. Can you talk about the impact of the French Revolution on the the press and writing? Yes. Well, there's a a historical side to the story, um, but in, in some ways that history is also... Uh, a metaphor, uh, a, a metaphor for modernity, if you like, um, for the for the question of of what writing um, is in, in a modern world. And I think that, um, and actually, that this is also true in terms of the reaction to this to my own work is uh, in, in progress. Um, I gave a, a lecture series called the Town Lectures in Oxford a, a few years ago in which I, I, I had a sort of first effort at trying to write the book. Um, and a lot of it was about the material that we've been talking about, about book burial, about kissing books, about ritual use of books and so on. And um, the, but the audience was a very wide-ranging audience, and you know, in, including modernists. And, and one of their reactions was to say, but this is an old story. This is not a, new, this is not a story of today. This is, this is really something that belongs in the past because, because modernity's relationship to writing is completely different. So I, you know, I, was, I was intrigued by this. I was challenged by it. I thought I really had to think it through. And the French Revolution became one way of, of thinking about this. Um, there's a painting uh, by, by David uh, of, of the death of Marat. It's called The Death of Marat, although originally its title in French was The Last Breath of Marat, which is a slightly different thing. Um, and it's clearly at some several, some level, it's a martyrological painting for the French Revolution. Marat is one of the heroes of the French Revolution, and he dies. And it, it's modelled on Christian representations of, of saints um, uh, being martyred, and also, for that matter, uh, ancient classical pagan uh, Im- uh, or images based upon uh, upon pagan pagan world, in which um, uh, in which say the death of Socrates. Um, so a, a similar sort of function. Now, on the one hand, the death of Marat is a, like a, a sort of secularized moment. 
um, uh, this is uh, the writer in, in the modern vogue. And also at the same time, it, it feels like a kind of spiritualization of, of the question. We're no longer talking about embodiment. We're talking about ideas in the abstract and the, the, the enlightenment, um, and especially the French enlightenment is, is thought about in, in those sorts of ways. And then this this emanates out into two other features of uh, of the revolution, which of course happened so so quickly and is so violent. One of its areas of violence was the guillotine, and the, and the guillotine is um, is a very very peculiar uh, way of killing people, um, which we now associate with extraordinary violence and pain, but was actually designed to be the cleanest, quickest, most humane way of killing possible, in which there would be no disjunction between being alive and being dead. Uh, and I, I, I think that that, uh, and I, I call this ghost in the book, it's, I mean, ghost in the book is, is, a, is a philosophical idea, which has mainly been developed in the 20th century, to explain uh, the, the, the ghost in language, the, uh, the, 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 the non-presence, the, 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 the non-physical which in some sense language is, is, is held to be. Um, and I, I think we've become very attached to that idea that we have this non-physical relationship. Uh, but the guillotine, um, the death of Mara, the painting, these are all reminders that it, it hasn't gone away, that our, our relationship is, uh, it, it is more embodied uh, than, than we think. And in some sense, the idea of the ghost of the machine, which is, again, a whole new version of that in relation to the, the, uh, the computer revolution, um, is, is uh, another way which, which looks as if it's escaping embodiment, but at the same, and escaping mortality perhaps at some level, but actually is, is profoundly involved in it. So that the last section of the book begins with the French Revolution, but I suppose at the heart of it is also the computer revolution, Turing and, you know, and, 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 and other theorists of artificial intelligence. Uh, and that, that deep question, which of course, you know, again, since, since the book was published, my book was published, um, artificial intelligence is more and more, and now on the daily headlines, certainly in British, the British press, um, an extraordinary paranoia about artificial intelligence, which also may even be true. It might be right, it might be that this is the end of civilization, uh, although I think climate change might get there first. But, uh, but, but uh, so who knows, who knows? Uh, it's, 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 it's a race from hell. Um, I, th I think again, though, that artificial intelligence, we have a way of misunderstanding it because we turn it into a, a sort of zany film about robots. Um, and and we, think, we, we think the robots are out to get us. Uh, actually, what's involved here is, is something possibly more disturbing, which is that the robot is in us is is inside our own bodies already, uh, and um, uh, the real uh, the real issues at the moment are ways in which um, public understanding, public relationships are being um, technologized without us even realizing that they are. Um, uh, and and you know the, uh, you know the one example is the algorithms that um, that big tech companies use, um, which have discovered that that hatred and and, and anger are, are the best ways to get you know more activity. And big tech companies they want activity. They're not really interested in us. Uh, they want activity, uh, and activity is commodified, but it's also deeply politicized. Um, and again, we. Uh, 
we've separated ourselves from the danger of that. There really is a profound political danger in this uh, that we are wishing away from ourselves. Um, but it all comes back to, I think, at some level, to this concept of bibliophobia. Yeah, there, there, there was a lot for, uh, for thought in what you said. You're right. Uh, we, we seem to, it's not only algorithms, but a lot of, let's say, public intellectuals, or so-called public intellectuals, or sometimes I used to just call them celebrities. Anyway, uh, they just thrive on controversy because they know that's what gets them activity. Uh, let's talk about the theory of two texts. That's uh, a theory from, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, Shoshona, Noah, is, uh, I'm, I'm sure I mispronounced it. Shoshona. <laughs> yeah. So what is that theory of two texts? Okay. Well, um, Shoshana Zuboff is, is, is a theorist of, um, uh, of technology, business, and, and, and media. Um, she works at the juxtaposition between many, many different fields. Um, and uh, she uh, undertook a long-term study uh, for a book which turns out to be, uh, it calls itself as being about the surveillance revolution. But at the heart of the book is a profound moment in the history of uh, artificial intelligence at a practical level and in the history of big tech. It's really the moment where Google worked out how to make money. So Google created um, a wonderful, wonderful search engine, which anybody who was around in, in the 90s will know made a huge difference because suddenly a search engine which actually worked. Um, but actually, at first, uh, Google found it quite difficult to know what to do with it in terms of capitalizing it. It was, uh, you know, it was very, very useful to lots of people. Uh, you could just sort of charge them for it, um, but they weren't sure that they wanted to do that in a direct way. And then there was a moment um, when they uh, they realized and it's quite a, quite a funny story, which which Zuboff tells and I retell in the book as well about. Um, the uh, TV program, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, when they were they realized that what was going on was not just the contents of the search, what what I might, what piece of information I might get by asking the computer a question, but the collection of people who were asking for the same thing at the same time. So there was a commodification of searching rather than of the contents of, of searching. And that lies behind the idea of the two texts. On the, on the one hand, there is the text in front of us, the text that I, I, I might be reading myself, which is made up of, of, of a human script in, in many different forms. But on the other hand, there is me as a kind of text, or not really me, but a collection of me's, which is the metadata of, uh, 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 of, uh, uh, of one of these sorts of tra transactions. Uh, Google discovered that it was monetizable to a degree that, you know, Croesus and, and Midas could only have dreamt of. Um, unbelievably powerful, also occluded from its users so that we didn't even know that we were the commodity that was being exchanged. Um, we didn't know that we were in some sense being sold. Of course, Facebook does the same thing all over again. But there is a, obviously something interesting about this just as a way of thinking about, um, about the computer and about, about digitalization. But there is also something philosophical going on here, which I think we need to think about a lot more, and each of us needs to think about uh, a lot more. 
Um, because I think that, uh, I mean, I think I mentioned earlier on that, you know, Zuckerberg, for instance, is very fond of using the word communication and thinking of this as being somehow almost like a private transaction, but then multiplied to the power in that I want something, I want to talk to you, what says that, you want to talk to me, and Facebook made, makes it nice and easy for us to do that, and we want to express ourselves, and we just sort of exchange that information. But that's not actually what Facebook really does, and it's certainly not how Facebook makes money. Uh, metadata works at a different kind of level. So there, there is a really very simplistic version of language theory which, which keeps on insisting that it's about communication. Um, and there's a, there's a famous passage in Wittgenstein where he talks about how that's how a lot of us are taught all the time to think that that's what language is doing. It's like a series of boxes with beetles in them. Uh, and each person thinks that their own beetle is the only example of it. Uh, but this, you know, this is a model of language, he says, but it's not the language that we use. It is far more simple than the language that we use. An alternative model is what's known in, in, um, in cognitive philosophy as the black box theory, which is around, uh, you know, that there are inputs and output, outputs, but nobody knows what the content is. Now that's a, a profoundly problematic model for what's going on in, uh, in what we call communication. We think we've got beetle boxes, but we've actually got black boxes. We, we think we are the subjects of Facebook, but we are actually the objects of Facebook and Google. Um, we are being commodified ourselves and our transactions are being. And I, I think this gets to the root of something so important that we just will not face up to about the complexity of being a linguistic species. We think of language as being an instrumental thing which enables us to do things uh, that we would be able to do, as it were, without language. Uh, we think that language is a system of reference in which, uh, which applies to things in the world, and so words are straightforward substitutes and reference for things in the world. Now, there are, you know, we would need another, not just one hour, we would need another 10 hours to even begin to, to get into the complexity of this subject from a philosophical point of view. But let's just say instead, that instead of being like that, it is an exchange system. And it's much more like a currency, if you like, a cur you know, currency exchanges, which, which deal with the simultaneous transactions of, of things which, which can be exchanged with each other, but which are not in themselves individual things. Language is like that. We... We have a set of words uh, and we have a set of things in the world. Uh, we exchange words for things, but not on a one-to-one -one basis. Uh, we exchange those words for ourselves. We use words to describe ourselves, but again, not in a form that is uh, immediately understandable as one-to-one as -one, uh, correspondence at all. And so we need to get used to the idea that the world that we inhabit is a self-made or a species made, uh, and of course, multilinguistic, um, with many, many variants within it, system. Uh, and we can't begin to understand what we're doing to ourselves, unless we're prepared to take this more complex view uh, of what it is to be a linguistic species, to be, a, and, and actually, I think even more profoundly than that, uh, to be a reading species and not just a speaking species. Uh, when, when you were talking about this idea of Metadata was reminded. I was a TA in a course a long time ago about analog writing and digital writing. I remember I read somewhere that 
uh, the the idea of text in the monitor, it was likened uh, to that Freudian idea of iceberg, you know, conscious and sub unconscious. So what you see is actually the conscious, what you see on the screen. But below that, that metadata is like the subconscious. You have no idea what's going on there. And again, when we find we look for something on uh, Google, it throws up an answer, which is mainly composed of the input, which is that community of users that you just mentioned. Again, the philosophical implications might be, okay, what is the truth? What is the reality? Is it giving me what the users are asking for or what the truth or the fact uh, out there is, uh, really is? Yes. Well, you know, and, and, and we mediate that argument through um, a terrible argument of the death that we're having at the moment around fake news in which i mean you know on both sides there is a sense of unique proprietorial ownership of truth (laughs) and the other side are committing fakeness but you know the the really difficult thing is that actually we're mirrors of each other at at, at that moment um and that's not to say that there isn't such a thing you know the the easy the easy move from a philosophical point of view at that point is to go into relativism uh, and to say that there is no such thing as truth that's that isn't not the case that's certainly not a necessary result of of recognizing that argument uh but there is a difficulty that 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 truth is not perhaps what we think it is it's 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 not just out there and available to be found and then uh, exchanged it has to be discovered all the time and uh it's a very complex thing and you know uh, ancient philosophers uh, worried about this in relation to how how does truth relate to language you know long before we did in terms of thinking about how does truth relate to metadata. Uh, let's talk about the idea of uh, censorship or blasphemy or hate crimes. Yes. And you have the example of Salman Rashid in your book. And at that time, yes. uh, and that unfortunate accident hadn't happened. It just happened a few months ago. Uh, but it's great that he's he's, he's he's well and he's safe and he's, he's started talking again and writing. So can you talk about the impact of Salman Rashid's satanic verses on censorship and blasphemy? And hate crimes? Yes. I mean, it, it, it's a very, very difficult subject to talk about. And I found it difficult to talk about when I was writing the book. And I was very worried, actually. Um, it, it was part of the book that I talked about with my partner, who was uh, who, who felt that I was taking... I, I was I was getting into arguments that were taking me in in, the, in in a problematic direction in relation to the Rushdie case, uh, and so I rewrote those book those parts you know again and again, and then I have to say that um, I, 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 as well as my grief and, and shock and horror at what happened um, last year to, to Rushdie, um, uh, I, I also felt mortified and a bit uh, and a bit ashamed of, of, of having written about about Rushdie in, in my own book, um, because we 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 need to to recognise the human consequences um, and Rushdie is alive. Um, what has happened to Rushdie is something which he has written about very profoundly himself. Um, although I also understand that he has written about how. He, he wished he could be somebody other than just the writer of Satanic Verses. Um, he has become, as it were, just known for that one thing. Uh, at the heart of his arguments about, which actually goes back to your childhood stories, uh, which he would share of, of, of how you, as a Muslim, he, he held, or in the Muslim family, how he held not just um, the holy book in um in reverence, but any written book um, that you, you couldn't drop it to the floor uh, without having to make some sort of 
you know, perhaps sort of semi-comic, but, you know, act of blessing upon yourself. I've, I've, I've dropped a written text. And, and Rushdie writes about how actually all written text is sacred for him at some level. Um, but the sacredness that he describes, of course, is a very different kind of sacredness. And what Rushdie argued was that for him, the really sacred thing was the ability of writing to allow us to imagine ourselves, to represent ourselves, to imagine how other people are, how they are represented, and the relational uh, uh, processes that take place between them. Now, that's what he understands and perhaps what I would understand as well, maybe you as well, because I know that you, you too, like me, have done a, that, that very strange thing. You've written a, an English literature PhD, um, and uh, we we try we try to use the word literary, I think, to explain that process of of how writing enables both representation and imagination. Now, Rushdie then makes a contrast between that. And what he sees as the potentially um, uh, much more reductive version of representation that can take place when religions, uh, as it were, uh, reduce all notions of the holiness of text to what happens in their own particular religion. Uh, as I say, I, I find it uh, a very difficult subject to talk about now um, because it is uh it, it, it is not a, it, because it's not it, it's it's extremely personal but but it is also really profoundly important for all of us um i, I suppose perhaps the, another way into it is is not to think so much in terms of that particular case but to think about the the very very long history of associating uh books with the sacred and then um treating the uh, the use of those books through laws around sacrilege, blasphemy, uh, censorship, persecution, and so on. Um, and I think what we have to realise is that although we might think that and, and you know uh, bodies that that talk about censorship a lot lot now think about all of this to do with censorship as being about dangerous ideas, uh, and then politicians want to stop us from exchanging dangerous ideas. And so they censor books. But that's not the history of what we have. Um, mo uh, most of the laws that we have in relation to uh, protecting the populace from, um, from dangerous books actually originate with blasphemy laws. Um, now, you, again, I think a, a, perhaps a, a member of a particular religion will then just think about that in terms of their own religion. But again, I think there's actually something more widespread going on here. And I think uh, in some ways that's also a reminder of, or at least it opens out the question of, why do religions found themselves around books? It might seem obvious, but it's not really an obvious thing. Um, it's one of those obvious things which is actually highly odd as soon as you get to think about it. Now, I suppose that individual religions think in each individual case that the reason why a book is holy is because of the God that created that book and created that world. And so uh, the, the, the book is holy because it contains the divine. But I think the reason, a, a reason, perhaps maybe we should want to be careful about generalizations at this level, but it seems to me that the book as a form of contents 
a form of profound subjective contents creates a relationship which is uh, <laughs> tends towards the sacred in itself. It, it almost cre- it, it, I'm not saying that, that divinity is, is a way of trying to apprehend that, that that would be far too simplistic. But certainly, uh, it's not an accident that it's books that are holy and not other things. Um, because the book is is both a physical thing, and yet at the same time, it contains something abstract. Uh, and in our attempt to make sense of that bridge between the physical and the non-physical, or between the, the, the perishable and the imperishable, between the, the mortal and the immortal, uh, yeah, when you realise that that's what a book can do, that's why a book seems to be so important. And also, I think, why a book seems to be transgressive. So, um, you know, one person's holy book, of course, becomes another person's, uh, uh, you know, sacrilegious book. Um, and uh, it, it's not an accident, again, that the, that the Rushdie case surrounds um, uh, a novel in relation to a holy book, just as it's not, not an accident that uh, Savitas in the 16th century uh, you know, is, is burned at the stake with copies of his own book um, tied to his feet um, because of uh, a, a, a perceived heresy. Heresy itself is a really, really interesting concept. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned that name, uh, Michael Servetus. Can you talk about him and how he's, who was he? Uh, I didn't know him before I read the book. Talk about him a little bit and also uh, how he influenced the uh, arguments of, of Voltaire and Rousseau and use that story to kind of highlight the power of book in, in the emergence of modernity. Sure. Well, um, Savitas is a, a, a Spaniard originally who, who, um, who then traveled around, around Europe through France and, uh, and then ended up in Geneva. He's, you know, he's, he's living and working in the age of Reformation. <laughs> Uh, of, of increasing conflict around religion. Um, and he originally became, I mean, he, he became particularly interested in the concept of the Trinity. Now, the, tri- the Trinity is um, the, the, the strangest and, and most mysterious part of, of, of Christianity at some level. I mean, okay, we, you know, we, we could argue about that forever. You know, the incarnation and the crucifixion are not unimportant things. But the, the Trinity is, is, is weirder in the sense that it, 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 uh, it says that um, the Divine Father is identical with the Divine Son and is identical with um, a third thing, the, 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 a Divine Spirit. Um, and in the early 16th century, um, Erasmus in particular, but other scholars as well, pointed out that the basis in the Christian scriptures for this was actually very thin uh, and possibly just examples of corrupt text and of interpolated text. Um, and they talk, treated this initially as a sort of textual problem, perhaps, um, but it hit an absolutely violent nerve because the interesting thing about the Trinity is that although it is only very sort of very exigently scriptural, and although it is very, very difficult to understand, the Trinity on the whole has been the issue that divides orthodoxy from unorthodoxy. And Savitas uh, was involved in, 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 in examining arguments about the Trinity and about how they might be heretical in Spain. And then he began to say, no, the, the, the heresy is the Trinity. The Trinity is a heretical idea. 
And in Spain, this was a particularly powerful idea because Spain at that time was only just coming out of, and or perhaps just entering into, the extraordinary uh, conflict between um, Islam disappearing and Christianity taking over. And in Islam, the Trinity, of course, was just a highly, highly uh, anathema as as an idea. There is only one God. And so in some ways, um, the thinkers who were anti-Trinitarian were appealing to ideas which reformists, you know, of of all kinds, reformists who were attracted towards Islam or attracted towards um, Judaism or attracted towards Protestantism, various kinds, they might be able to find some unity. But they found instead they were the most hated people in Europe. So Servetus became, if you like, everybody's hate object, even the famously peaceful religious leaders were happy to see Savitas burned. And I find that really, really odd. Why why is he such an arch heretic? It's not as if Savitas himself writes texts, which either particularly, he's a very, very interesting thinker. And not just in religious terms, he's also quite experimental with the natural sciences. sciences. And, he, and he's a highly speculative thinker. But I doubt it. I doubt if Savitas would be on your list of 10 top thinkers of the 16th century. But he's on your list of the most dangerous thinkers of the 16th century. And even being associated with his name for the next 150 years was still a really, really, really dangerous thing. The last people to be burned alive in England were burned on the basis of belief uh, of a lack of belief in the Trinity. Uh, and this continues to be an issue which goes into the later 17th century and, and into what we now call the Enlightenment. And so when, uh, first of all, I suppose, figures in, in the Netherlands like Spinoza, and then later in France, Voltaire and Rousseau, when they wanted to find an absolute archetype for thinking about dangerous ideas, and ideas that people want to forbid. Pierre Bale in France is another example of it, um, at the same time as Spinoza. They latched onto this idea of, uh, of the case of Savitas and why did Savitas have to be burned and why did so many people gang up on him? And the only solution that they felt they could find to that would be to try to redraw completely the boundaries between religion and politics and to, to find a different model for how politics and particularly how the state deals with religion. Um, uh, and, and of course, you know, there's, there's a long history which is ongoing into our own times, an argument about it, about, about how you do that um, and how therefore you reconfigure the state to accommodate that. Um, I've taken a lot of your time and I'd just like to end this conversation with a final question. So when I was a student and I was doing my research we went to a lot of workshops and one thing we were always told that it's an art to write about complicated ideas with clarity so clarity is a good sign of writing but which we know it's quite difficult to achieve but um, and i'm reminded of beckett you know that an act of writing is a never-ending act and what, what is, is is clarity a feature of writing or is it indecipherability uh, it's kind of a Derridian argument here as well. So I'm uh, I'm keen to know your thoughts. Uh, absolutely profound question. Um, and I think a, a, rather, a, a rather beautiful question, the way that, that you put it. Clarity, transparency, um, lucidity, these are all metaphors that we use to describe what we're trying to achieve 
in our writing. Um, at the same time, I think we that they're all metaphors which which suggest the sheer difficulty of achieving that. <laughs> uh, we we might you know that might be what we're aiming for, but we 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 perhaps we can't quite find it. Um, and indecipherability is, I think, a, a really, really interesting thing just to juxtapose with that. Uh, and here we have something which is very interesting about the history of scripts. There are there are human scripts, of course, in everyday use, which are very different from each other, and which we we immediately can read because we are familiar with them in an everyday uh, way. But then there are other human scripts which have become lost for one reason or another, which have become uncoupled from their origins in such a way that we can no longer read them. Uh, and these have become very, very famous examples in archaeology of, of really, in some ways, the deep mystery that archaeology is trying to unfold for us. So the, uh, the, the decipherment of hieroglyphics um, in the 18th and 19th century, the decipherment of, uh, of, of the Minoan scripts uh, in, in the 20th century. These are examples of where the notion of decipherment became so powerful. And the, the stories of the great heroes of decipherment uh, became kind of the stories of you know, titanic intellectual uh, gains. There are still scripts that we do not even know whether they are scripts, never mind uh, how to decipher them. There's a particular beautiful example for me beautiful example of the Rongorongo uh, artifacts which survive from near where you are or in, in, where, where, where you, where you live in, in New Zealand um, of, uh, of scripts which may be scripts, may not be scripts. Um, certainly nobody knows how to read them anymore. Now, in principle, that could happen to any piece of writing. Uh, and there is noth nothing intrinsically decipherable about human language and human speech. That beautiful film Arrival by, by, by Villeneuve uh, a few years ago tried to give a, a sense of this by, by having a, an alien script arriving in, uh, you know, uh, or, or just outside planet Earth, and, and people just don't know how to read it. And, and brilliantly, the way they represent that is not with squiggles that look like writing, but with these sort of moving splodges in a, in a circular uh, area. Um, so the very idea of how you would go about interpreting them was, was put in question. Now, uh, although those seem like very special cases, actually, I think the idea of indecipherability is present in all writing and present in all language, because we it's not a system exchange of one-to-one. -one. It, it, it is not communication directly. Um, languages, are, uh, written languages are not pictographic. In fact, pic pictograms are much, much more difficult to explain and interpret archaeologically than written scripts. Um, and you know, you, you use the example of Beckett, and 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 my book does finish with Joyce and Beckett as a, a as a pairing. Uh, and I do that, you know, as an English speaker, and, and and of course, you know, if I was not a native English speaker, I might have chosen you know any number of different examples around the world of of, of other languages and other beautiful pieces of writing. Um, I'm not choosing Joyce and Beckett because of you know, just what I'm trying to claim that they're particularly importantly beautiful writers, although I do love them both. Um, but it's more for what they say about, what they write about, their own use of language, 
as being at some level indecipherable in its very pursuit of uh, of clarity. What we want is perfect linguistic relationship in which we could tell our own stories absolutely truly through our own use of language, and then we could share that between us and, and we would understand each other through that. What we have is actually a, a much more difficult relationship. Um, and, uh, you know, Joyce clearly was testing that to its limits, you know, in, in the passage first to Ulysses and then, and then to Finnegan's Wake, of, of creating a book which is almost indecipherable, <laughs> uh, and yet is legible. Um, uh, and that seems to me to be uh, a beautiful thing, but also something which is trying to get to the heart of the, of, of the mystery that we have of, of, of inhabiting languages together and making sense of each other and of making sense of our difference from each other, but at the same time, making sense of ourselves and making sense of the, of the similarities between each other using a medium which is not in the end um, a transparent and uh, lucid medium for these things, although it gives us the promise of that and the hope for that and the desire for that and in, in that sort of longing for it, um, it, it creates a lot, a lot of our sense of uh, the attachments to, to to writing and writing and the place it's played in our own lives. Uh, uh, and, I, and I think Derrida was also kind of doing the same thing in writing and his philosophy. Uh, yes. It was a perfect example with Joyce and Writing and writing the book um, mm. in ways that were unexpected, as well as ways that I, I, I kind of knew about. Um, mm. The way that he writes about Salan's poem *Shibboleth* is, uh, is is a beautiful example of that. But Salan's poem is is itself, um, you know, a, an astonishing thing, uh, which at the same time alludes to something very, very ancient, which is the, you know the shibboleth itself as as the sense of something which. Um, which shows for for us the almost the impossibility of the transition and transaction embodied in, in language. Mm. Uh, is there any other uh, project you're currently working on? Any books to be published anytime yes, soon? Yes, I'm, I'm working on a I'm, I'm working on a, um, a very different project. Although, of course, in your own mind, everything is related. You do things. Um, I'm writing about Erasmus, so this is uh, whereas Bibliophobia is uh, is a book which which constantly makes leaps across five thousand years um, in ways which are you know against any potential critics of the book. I would say I did know I was doing it. It's not accidental that the book <laughs> is not in it, and you know I am being playful about this. Um, but it is it is it is a book which which tries to write in a sort of collage like way about. About you know potentially everything, um, the the book that I'm writing now is focused on a very particular moment in the early 16th century, um, and Erasmus uh, is 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 well known, I suppose, for two things. One is for, uh, as it were, recovering um, the ancient languages of, of Greek and Latin uh, for their for, for use in the in his part. Present day, it's not quite true, of course, because you know uh, these languages when it were you know, Latin was the language of of, of 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 Western Europe throughout the Middle Ages. Um, but he is trying to think about uh, about um, literary language, in a, in, you know, I think in a new way, and or at least a uh, different way. The other thing that he's famous for is producing a bilingual text of the New Testament in Greek and, and Latin. Um, and uh, the problem that 
there was that the text that was the official text of the church in the West was in Latin. But Erasmus was saying, no, the, the original text is in Greek and it's in a different language. It means something in its own terms. And in order to understand it, uh, we don't need theologians to explain it. We need to just learn how to understand the Greek language and how it's used. And in that sense, to treat the Bible as any other book, um, uh, as a work of what we might call literature, although it's a much more profound and a, and a much bigger concept, I think, than our current sense of literature, which tends to be around fiction and around escapism and, uh, and the non-real at some level. Um, and so I'm trying to take that moment and think uh, what, and, and the book is called The Art of Reading. Um, and so in that sense, it is very much related to bibliophobia, um, but it's much more about what, what, how does the reading process work? How does Erasmus's understanding of that um, teach us something about uh, about the importance of that? Yeah. Fascinating. I can see the connections now, and I and I hope to be able to talk to you soon about that book once uh, once it's published. Uh, Brian, yeah, I, you... I take a little time to write books. I take a little bit of time to write books. So it won't be this year. It won't be this year. But it, it, I'm, I'm I'm trying to write it more quickly than the last one. <laughs> oh, cool. I'll keep my eyes open. Um, Brian, thank you very much for this fascinating conversation. Talking, reading the book and talking to you reminded uh, me of a lot of my childhood memories of reading as well. Thank you very much for this conversation. I'm so pleased that you say that um, about about remember the sense of memory in your own life, and I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for reading the book so carefully and asking such interesting questions. Thank you. <laughs>